in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we'll be hearing about how a psychological intervention could improve achievement and learning about the complexities of measuring mercury in fish. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Nick Howe. I have a confession. I'm not particularly good at maths. I never have been. Now, that's not to say that I'm really, really bad at it. Like, I know that 3 squared is 11, and that if you divide anything by 0, you get 42. But it's never been my subject, you know. But what if I thought differently at school? Instead of knowing that maths wasn't my thing, what if I was encouraged to try again, to not accept that me and mathematics were just never going to tessellate? Could things have been different? Well, according to psychologist Carol Dweck from Stanford University... They might have been. She's a proponent of a theory called growth mindset, a belief that attributes aren't fixed. Instead of accepting that I'm just bad at maths, I could see my mathematical ability as something that could be trained and could grow. And that very process of changing my mindset could also change my performance. And it doesn't mean anyone can do or become anything, but it means everybody has the capability to develop their intellectual skills. That's Carol. She's published various studies over the years exploring how growth mindsets could impact young people. And this week in Nature, she and her co-authors are publishing their biggest and most rigorous study yet. Their experiment gathered data from a nationally representative sample, over 60 public secondary schools across the United States. Their goal was to deliver a growth mindset intervention which could be controlled and standardised. In their case, it was a self-administered online exercise. Here's first author David Yeager from the University of Texas. Students go to the school computer lab and then they they read new content, they answer questions, they interact uh, with an online activity. From the kids' perspective, that's the whole study. But then we researchers go back to the schools and obtain academic records at the end of the first year of secondary school, end of ninth grade. And they found that their growth mindset intervention did indeed have an effect. A short online growth mindset treatment improved core course grades in the group of lower-achieving students, which is students at or below the 50 percentile in their high school, by around 0.11 standard deviations. That equates to about 3% of students moving on to their next year of school when previously they could have been asked to repeat the year. Carol and David also found that there was about a 3% increase in the number of students choosing to take advanced classes in mathematics. Now, not everyone was affected by the growth mindset intervention. In fact, there were times that it had no effect at all. And when it did, the effects weren't huge. But Carol emphasised that in an educational context, all of this is relative. We got about half the effect for the low achievers of the most successful past studies with no particular teacher training with a self-administered program that took less than an hour and cost 
uh, very little. Growth mindset theory is not without its opponents. Timothy Bates from the University of Edinburgh, for example, wasn't completely sold on the study. The thing that I'm most interested in is what did they actually do? And unlike most scientific papers from this paper, you couldn't replicate the study because it doesn't actually contain the materials. So I think a critical thing for researchers wanting to explore this in the next months will be to access those materials and dissect them to make a sort of parody case. Um, One could give people the answers to the last three questions of an exam. Um, That would be a very effective intervention. Children would then know uh, three more answers. But it it wouldn't generalise, it it wouldn't support uh, any theory. The intervention used by Carol and David hasn't been made public. They're worried that people might try to commercialise it. However, they are making it accessible for free to educators who want to use it. And researchers like Timothy will be able to request access to the material so long as they sign a few disclosure agreements. This may go some way to tackling one of Timothy's biggest reservations. Studies like this are hard to reproduce. It surprised us. We've had a PhD student working for the last four years on this. I've been doing work in the area for the last seven years. Uh, And the the core papers in this field have been cited thousands of times. They're among the the very most cited papers in all of psychology. Um, and, And yet... Uh, When we started, there were no straight replications of those original studies in existence. David and Carol are both well aware of these criticisms, and in this study, they took a lot of steps to try to overcome them. In particular, they removed themselves as much as possible from the study. Here's Carol to explain. The researchers, us, (laughs) were completely hands-off during the administration of the study the collection of the data, the organization of the data. Also, we had pre-registered hypotheses and analyses that were public and could not be changed. In addition, an independent set of statisticians analyzed the data without knowing which group was the experimental group or the control group, um, the nature of the different variables, and they confirmed the results of our analyses. Here's David. The Nature paper should end questions about whether this effect is reproducible by third parties because of the links that we went to. But this wasn't Timothy's only concern. He also pointed out that, reproducible or not, the effect sizes in this study are very small. Most people think that that something that works, you could see it work in a child. And at least you should see the classroom. And this is an effect which is so small, you need thousands of people to see it. Unsurprisingly, Carol and David disagreed and highlighted that this isn't the only approach. Here's Carol. We are not saying that a growth mindset intervention should replace other kinds of important school reform, but we uh, see it as a coordinated effort. An economist at Brown University, Matt Kraft, recently reviewed all available effect sizes from previous education RCTs that met a standard of rigor that would make them believable and laid out the distribution to say how much of an effect should you expect at what kind of cost. The effects we show in targeted subgroups of students are among the largest 
from the entire population of effects that have been observed in previous RCTs. There may not be stronger, even small-scale effects from studies that use rigorous randomized designs. That was David Yeager from the University of Texas at Austin. Before him, you heard Carol Dweck from Stanford University and Timothy Bates from the University of Edinburgh. You can find Carol and David's paper over at nature.com. It's been published open access, so you don't need a subscription. And if you're an educator and want to try this yourself, you can find information about where to get hold of the intervention in that paper. While reporting this story, it became clear to me that it might be a little bit of time before the debate surrounding growth mindset is fully settled among academics. But it also became clear that ultimately this is all about schools and how best to teach students. So I thought I'd also reach out to a teacher to get her take. Yeah, so my name's Teresa Ball and I'm an assistant head teacher at Hammersmith Academy. Teresa's school in West London has wholeheartedly embraced the growth mindset theory ever since the school's foundation almost a decade ago. From her point of view, it carries a very compelling message. I mean, it's the whole point of teaching. If people were just naturally good at things, um, there's not really much point in trying to teach people. And I think in schools now, there's been a, a drive and a push towards teaching students how to learn rather than just the things that they need to learn. So instead of just learning fact after fact, but learning skills that you can use in order to develop in subjects. Teresa was well aware that there'd been some debate over growth mindset theory and was eagerly awaiting this latest study. She'd heard a tip-off it might be on the way. I asked her if she thought that an online intervention like Carolyn David's could be a useful tool in her school. I think that this would be a kind of nice-to-have and it would be an add-on, but it would never replace all the other things that happen. I mean, all these things have been dressed up with different phrases over the years, but it still remains the same principle of trying to help students to be successful. Teresa did warn about the dangers of flashy scientific ideas leading teachers down the wrong path. For a long time, um, schools have been very quick to jump onto ideas without researching them properly. But actually, schools are are tending to move away from that. Nowadays, she thinks that interventions like this would be popular, but subject to scrutiny by schools themselves before they were introduced as part of their policy. I think schools would use it and try it out. Um, maybe with a select group of students and then see if it had an impact on that group of students compared to the rest of the cohort. But it, it certainly wouldn't be the only thing that schools would do. It wouldn't, <laughs> I mean, it's just not the nature of how schools operate. Ultimately, Teresa's view was fundamentally a practical one. We are trying to embrace kind of this research culture and so we are open about things. And um, I think we're open as well that like growth mindset isn't going to fix everything and for some students and for some situations it's not going to be what we want it to be and then there's something else that you might want to try but I think as a principle if the message that you're sending out to people is if you try this and you stick with it and you don't put a limit on what you can achieve and you don't assume that people are naturally good at things I don't see why that's ever going to be harmful to students in in a learning environment where they have to do all these different subjects anyway. That was Teresa Ball from the Hammersmith Academy in London. At the end of the show, we'll be talking about how a new Indian law aims to protect fossils. That's in the news chat. Now it's time for the research highlights read this week by Shamni Bundel. Whether it's the three-and-a-half-metre-tall giant mower 
or the unfortunately meaty dodo, unusually large birds are often associated with islands. Now, scientists studying fossils from New Zealand have found an example of another extinct giant, a prodigious parrot that lived around 17 million years ago. The fossil parrot that the scientists have inventively named Heracles inexpectatus stood at a metre tall and probably weighed around 7 kilograms. It's the largest parrot ever found, more than twice as heavy as current title holder the kakapo. Like the kakapo and the moa, both also from New Zealand, Heracles inexpectatus probably evolved its unusual size thanks to living in an isolated region with few natural predators. Big up that research over at Biology Letters. If a hacker wanted to create a traffic jam, what would it involve? Well, researchers have calculated how many cars would need to be hacked in order to bring Manhattan to a standstill. The scientists simulated traffic conditions and road networks in Manhattan. They found that if around 30% of cars on the road during a typical midday in the borough were immobilised, it could cause gridlock. A cyber attack like this may sound far-fetched, but in 2015, two hackers showed that they could take over a Jeep by tapping into its Wi-Fi. And while the authors admit jamming up Manhattan is a much taller order, they warn that just because something is difficult doesn't mean it can't happen. Find that study over at Physical Review E. Billions of people around the world rely on fish for nutrition, and for good reason. They're a great source of protein, vitamins and minerals. But fish are also the main route by which people are exposed to methyl mercury, a toxin which is formed when mercury is released into the environment by various human processes. Ingestion of large amounts of methyl mercury can cause heart problems and brain disorders. To prevent human exposure, an international treaty, the Minamata Convention, was introduced to prevent the release of mercury by humans into the environment. This effort has led to less methyl mercury in the sea. You'd think then that there'd be less of it in fish too. One thing we noticed was that depending on the fish species that people are talking about in their work was either the concentrations are going up or down or is remaining flat, even though the atmospheric levels of mercury have been declining. So the question was, like, why do we see all those different directions in terms of mercury levels in fish? This is Amina Shartup, a biochemist who looks at toxic chemicals in the environment. This week in Nature, she's publishing a paper that's trying to work out why people are seeing increases in methyl mercury levels in some fish, even though the amount in the environment is declining, and how the concentrations in fish may change in the future. I gave her a call to find out more and started out by asking how she was answering these questions. We wanted to construct a model that actually allows us to literally play around with different environmental parameters to see seawater temperature versus productivity level in the ocean. How is that going to impact this particular fish mercury level? versus another fish. So what was this model based on? The idea was to build, just to build a fish from scratch, right? So using mathematical equations, we will make a fish and have it grow in this mathematical universe we created for it, and then then eat other fish that are also robot math fish, and then see how 
depending on their diet and the conditions around that fish, how that is going to impact mercury levels. And so what did you find by doing this? As mercury levels in seawater have been declining and have recently plateaued due to a regulatory efforts, we have noticed, at least in our model, that despite the decline in seawater concentration, we haven't seen really a mercury decline in tuna, in the blue and tuna we're working on. And actually, if we project the increases in temperature in the Gulf of Maine, which is the regions we're working on, we see that the bluefin tuna mercury concentrations are going to increase despite a decline in mercury levels, which actually means that we also need to keep an eye on our carbon emissions and the implication that those emissions have on seawater temperature. Because even despite the declining mercury levels, we may see an increase in mercury levels in the fish just driven by seawater temperature. And how, how exactly does an increase in temperature lead to an increase in mercury in the fish? The reason we see an increase is when it's warm, and these are, uh, for the most part, cold-blooded animals, they are sensitive to temperature. So when the temperature of seawater increases a tiny bit, their activity level also increases. And so as their activity level increases, their consumption of food increases, but they don't grow fast enough to compensate for the fact that they're consuming more. Right, okay. So, so when things get warmer they eat more and they just end up accumulating more mercury in their system. Right. And um, also in the paper, you talk a little bit about overfishing as well. Like, what impact is that having? Yes. So diet, the diet is quite important. So depending on what a fish eats, it will have uh, a different level of exposure to mercury. Uh, The issue with overfishing certain species is that if, for example, that particular species was low in mercury, like a herring, for example, and you have another predatory fish that used to consume that herring, but now you overfish the herring, and so your other predatory fish decides it needs to eat something else. So depending on what that predatory fish is going to switch to, is it going to be a higher mercury-level fish or a lower mercury-level fish, you will see either a decline or an increase in mercury levels in that predatory fish. So in terms of thinking about sort of climate change action and things, is that what needs to be done then in order to prevent such increases in uh, the mercury concentrations in fish? So we often talk about climate change as those very abstract things, and it's really hard to see what our daily uh, implication could be for some people aside from, you know, um, extreme events. But this one was really trying to link the impact of climate change to all the other little things that we do in our daily lives. So uh, it's going to impact our plate, what we like to eat. It's not just those physical things around us. It's also in our food. That was Amina Shartup of the Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences in the US. You can find her paper over at nature.com. Speaking of what's over at nature.com, it's also chock full of interesting news, which brings me oh so smoothly onto what's coming next, which is of course the news chat. This week, I'm joined by Heidi Ledford, one of Nature's biomedical reporters. Hello, Heidi. Hi, Nick. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming down to the studio. This week, we've got a story about a survey gauging people's trust of scientists in the US. How are scientists faring, Heidi? 
Well, I have to admit, I was kind of surprised because it looks like scientists are faring pretty well. I mean, the percentage of Americans who say they have a great deal of confidence in science in, or in scientists, I guess I should say, uh, has actually increased since 2016. So it's up to 35 percent, used to be just 21 percent. So how are scientists doing compared to like other public figures that may also be gauged on their trust? Yeah, they're doing pretty well, actually. So uh, it's overall the amount of confidence that the public has in scientists is comparable with public trust in the military, which is one of the, you know, in the survey, at least, is one of the most trusted groups that they looked at. Okay. And was this true across the board or were there some people who trusted scientists more, some people who trusted them less? Yeah, I mean, there were some differences there, particularly along party lines. So in general, you know, you could see a trend that Republicans tended to trust scientists less than Democrats. Um, that may not be very surprising because you do often see, you know, particularly when it comes to environmental issues and climate change, what have you, uh, that the Democrats are more active on that front, generally speaking, than Republicans. There were also uh, differences in in how, you know, underrepresented minority groups felt about scientists. So black and Hispanic Americans, for example, tended to be a bit more skeptical, I'd say, of uh, particularly – I looked at uh, particularly the, the medical researchers. Um, the reason I focused on that is because there's a fair amount of difficulty trying to recruit underrepresented minorities into clinical trials. And one of the reasons people give for that is that there is that skepticism. And you can see that there in the numbers that um, you know black and Hispanic respondents were more skeptical of medical researchers than, for example, white respondents were. And do we know if there was any difference between people who had like a greater knowledge of science, like whether they trusted them less or more? Oh, yes. So people with a greater knowledge of science overall uh, tended to trust scientists more. I think that's you'd expect. (laughs) Not not too surprising necessarily. But overall picture is that trust in scientists is going up. It is. I mean, it appears to be. Truthfully, I don't you know, there aren't statistical confidence intervals on these numbers. But just if you look at the absolute percentages, then yes, they have gone up. This seems like quite good news then for science in the United States. Well, it does, I guess, when you when you look at these numbers. You know, it, it's a little bit hard for me to match those numbers up with some of the public discourse about climate change or vaccines, you know, things like that. But if it's a sign of a trend, um, you know, of growing faith in scientists, maybe they will be listened to a bit more in some of these debates. Maybe that could be a good thing. I guess one other point that could be drawn from this is that people do report a lot of skepticism of authority figures in general. And so uh, one person that I talked to about these numbers said, you know, not only is confidence perhaps going up, but also you have to remember that not all of the skepticism is due to science. Some of it is just due to general skepticism about authority figures and where information is coming from and potential biases and so forth. So maybe there's cause to be optimistic, maybe more optimistic than I happen to feel at the moment. <laughs> I don't know. And we're going to move on to what is hopefully another optimistic story. And there is a new law that is trying to be introduced in India to protect precious archaeological sites. Heidi, what's the background to this? Why is such a law required? Yeah, India has a number of really interesting geological sites um, and fossil sites and so forth um, that currently aren't being well protected by law. So there's a big push among Indian scientists at the moment to get lawmakers to institute something that will will preserve these sites. I mean, has there been any examples of where sites haven't been protected and something's gone wrong? Yes, there is. So um, as one example, there's this very cool large dinosaur nest 
that had been discovered. And they had even found the fossil of a snake that was coiled around one of the eggs. So it was this evidence, you know, that snakes were, were preying on dinosaur hatchlings perhaps long, long ago. But unfortunately, for a long time, there was nothing in place to protect those fossils. And people raided the site and stole some of the eggs. So people then are, are raiding these sites. Is there other reasons uh, that these sites are in danger? Yeah, you know, India is undergoing a period of really rapid development. I mean, they've had some sites that ha- are being threatened just by road expansion, for example. But there are building projects everywhere. Um, and some of those projects, you know, may compromise some of these sites. Is there just nothing in place to protect them at the moment? There's some, there's sort of a patchwork of regulations in different states and so forth, but there's not a, a coherent framework. And, it, and certainly there are many sites that are left uh, without any real regulations. Um, so I think what some of these scientists are proposing would really bring a, a more uniform protection to these areas. I mean, they're talking about really hundreds of, of different sites. Um, and they, you know, they're pushing to really institute some real consequences for damaging these sites. So, you know, some of the imprisonment, for example, or large fines. So the hope then that this law will make a difference, but I understand this isn't actually the first time there's been a push for this law. Why might this one in particular be different? Yes, they have tried this a couple of times before, and and to be honest, it didn't go anywhere. But they hope this time is that they can establish a national authority that would you know, help to establish geoparks that would promote tourism, and that would provide some seed money to help uh, get these regulations going. Well, we'll have to see if this bill is more successful than the previous ones. Heidi, thank you for those updates. Listeners, if you want to find out more about those stories and others, head over to nature.com slash news. And that's all for this week. But if your ears aren't quite tired of science just yet, then don't forget to check out our sister podcast, Science Talk, from Scientific American. You can find that in all the usual podcast places. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Nick Howe. See you next time.